So we find ourselves on the one hand concerned, of course, with each single life, and yet aware that beyond a certain point, some readiness and national pain for sacrifice is there, but only up to a certain point. Now that leaves us, of course, as I said before, with this terribly painful dilemma. We are on the one hand committed to Shlemut as a value. We certainly educate and inculcate the value of readiness to sacrifice. On the other hand, can we as a community say that the importance of territorial integrity is such, given its historical significance, that regardless of how many rivers of blood flow, we must pursue that goal with absolute single-minded determination. I think where Chazal stood with regard to this, did they simply ignore the human element in favor of the territorial or not? Medrash says, just the Venshleilam, Goyim have entered your domain and have defiled your sanctuary. Medrash says, Yizmalas, Kinalas of Mibayla. This is a song of praise. Should be a lamentation. But Chazal say this praise because the Benisham has vented his wrath, kiloates, kilochamos of Eitzim Ravonim upon sticks and stones, upon buildings and land, rather than upon human life. And with regard to the specific issue of some degree of territorial compromise, there's a remarkable Gemara. The Gemara says that time of, by Svishin of Israel, there was greater Israel. Certain times of Shloimamah. Times of Baishen was constricted. And Chazal say that constricted not simply by necessity but by choice. There were many towns, how big Rachi, which had been conquered or settled by Eile Mitzrayim, first commonwealth by Yisrishu, before by Yisrishu, then Yeshua, Eile Mitzrayim, and not by Eile Bobo, not the time of the second temple. Why? These were left in order that they should not have pushed of Israel, so that poor people during years of Shemitah would have from where to draw sustenance. And for that, Chazal say, how make many cities, Krachim are not simply villages or cities. Many cities were left unconquered, not invested in of Israel. For that purpose, so if one is convinced of security grants, giving Turning certain kachim save many lives, not just provide sustenance bishvis. So that is to be read out of court. Now, of course, I know the contention sometimes advanced. Ah, but there's all the difference in the world between not conquering, not being mekadesh to begin with, and returning once you have. Is anyone willing to sacrifice the life of his son or his daughter for that distinction? On the basis of that distinction. Maybe it has some merit, decisive weight, certainly not. I say again, this quantification is frightening. We ask ourselves, with regard to one factor, which unfortunately 
still within the overall ambience of the current Pasadena Israel, what level of terror is quote-unquote acceptable? In one sense, of course, the answer is zero. A couple of weeks ago, I attended the Levaya of Rami Walami, a friend of my son's, who was a rather neighboring Yeshua, Matniel. terrible tragedy. In one such case, certainly tragic, we have to strive to reach zero. But in another sense, if one arrives at the conclusion that zero you're not going to reach, without one that I, a priori obviate the process entirely because of that. And we are left, as I said before, the choice, if you will, between agonies. If we were fully satisfied with any of the options on the table, life would be much simpler. Inasmuch as one cannot be satisfied, A, because of certain uncertainties and pure security grounds, but secondly, because of the nagging thought that maybe, after all, you could hold down to everything that you have without returning anything, that nagging thought gnaws, perturbs, agonizes. that time of Rabbi Yechem Zakai's death, just prior to his death, Stamidim entered to talk to him. As soon as they saw him, Shechol Rabbi Yechem Zakai, Rich Stamidim Levakre, Kevin Shiroi Samishi Livkas, began to cry when he saw him. Amrulet Talmido, students asked him, Nei Yisrael, Amrulet Yemini, Pati Shechazim, Bimata Baiche, you Rabbi Yechem are the pillar of strength, why are you crying? Amalam Ilif Melech Basavadomi Malikinasi Shayim Kanamacha Bekeva. Shim Koisalain Kasakas Elohim Israel and Surisraila, even the Selemisas Misasaila. But Yochalefai said, Vorum Shach Mumain Afal Bekevisi Boche, the Achshash Molikimosi, the Melech Macha Mocha Kodish Bohu, Shuhai the Kaim Elbe Meloni. ordinary king, flesh and blood, whose authority upon me is limited, his capacity to punish me is temporal and confined. Wouldn't I cry? So, being brought before the Benishlal in my own total mastery, I ought not to cry. But then he concluded, not only that, I see before me two paths, one leading to heaven, one leading to hell, and I don't know which way I'm going. Of course, the question is asked, this is apparently what the Talmudian couldn't understand. You Rabbi Yechai Mezak, Ner Yisrael, Pati Shechazak, Abba Yemini, the pillar of spiritual strength in that generation. He's concerned, he's going to Ghana, we're going to Ghana. Whence the source of this worry? Razachem Yivrachir, it's quoted the name of Rishon He said that the reason for this concern was a retrospective reflection on incidents said in the Gemara Gitten. Gemara Gitten says that it was a story that the Yechon of Zakai was caught 
the siege of Yerushalayim was able to sneak out, and he spoke to the Roman general who was in charge of the operation. And he was given the opportunity to make one request. And the request, yes, was ten yavni v'chachomer, well, a couple of us, ten yavni v'chachomer, shushut Rabbi Gamliel, and a cure for Rabbi Tzad. Yes, the three things. Yavni, the sages, should be preserved. That the lineage of Rabbi Gamliel, of the Sius, should be maintained, and the cure be found for Rabbi Tzad. Mother says subsequently, Rabbi Yosef, some say was Rabbi Akiva, ordered with regard to this incident, the pasuk, the wisdom of those who presumably are wise, that they have been somewhat cast back, and their judgment has been afflicted. Why? You have a choice. What they ask for us, what do you ask only for this? Why don't you ask for Yerushalayim? Why don't you ask the siege to be broken and should all go pack up and go back to Rome? So he made a mistake. And the Gemara explains why, what did he think? Who saw that? thought, If you ask that much, the request would perhaps not be honored, then even the lesser salvation, that too they won't. So the Rav Zal said, Mirchen ben Zaki at the time decided as he decided. And presumably, if he had to decide again, he would have done the same. But, denying the doubt, retrospectively, that perhaps they were right. Maybe if he'd gone for broke, he could have gotten everything. That doubt, that remained on his deathbed, Looking back, thought, who knows? Instead of going to Ganeid, he's going to Gehenim. He had the opportunity to save Yerushalayim, and he let it pass. That's that kind of agony, prospectively, retrospectively, that confronts us. In another context, T.S. Eliot once wrote, the dove descending the air with flames and incandescent terror, and which tongues declare the soul discharge from sin and error. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. To some extent, the sense of the choice of pyre or pyre is one which attends upon our deliberations and we should attend upon our deliberations. You heard before the Shvil HaZahav, golden meat. If what is intended is a golden mean, is an ideal solution, which will answer all our hopes, address all our needs, and take care of all our concerns, that of course is Shemel. There is no such Vilazah. In its context, in the Rambam, going back to Aristotle, there there is a sense somehow between different extremes, there is the optimum. We have no optimum at an ideal level. From the point of view of a committed halachic Jew, and if one reads the map, geopolitically speaking, as one which does afford the opportunity for territorial compromise, which will last, then, 
We're giving up something here, giving up something there. We cannot have an optimal ideal solution in that sense. But of course, there can be some sense, Shvila Zahav, very least, as to how the debate is conducted and how it's perceived regarding the mode and the spirit of discussion and the depth with which it is approached. A median path, if you will, which can morally and not only morally, but also in terms of our needs, viewed as being the ideal which we need at present, something between complacent apathy on the one hand and the readiness to accept what is being proposed as being absolutely what we want and what we need, and between knee-jerk bellicosity and the other. Between single-minded affirmation and single-minded rejection. Between belligerence and indifference. And what we certainly need is the recognition of the difficulties and the agonies concerning this process. And given a sense of the importance, both contemporaneously and historically, of the decisions that need to be made, an awareness of the need to approach with the utmost gravity, the readiness to listen not only to what we intuitively think, but to what we intuitively reject. What others are saying, the issues are too important to rely upon our instincts and intuitions. We need to have reason, profound, comprehensive discussion and debate. And debate accompanied always by that caveat which in the course of heated debate karma once throughout, beseech, ye think thee, ye may be mistaken. Accompanied by the sense it is not enough with all the passion at our command to walk diligently and persistently by the best light that we have, but as Arnold's celebrated essay quoted, to see to it concomitantly that we indeed have the best light that we can have. And above all, let us be certain that we do not, as unfortunately many today have done, make question of what position is taken the issue of the total compromise, make that a kind of test of Zionism. Is somehow, the more hardline the position, the greater of Zionist you are, and vice versa. I do not think for a moment that those who are in favor of territorial compromise are by definition, maybe by accident some of them are, but by definition one whit less Zionist in their commitment, nor one whit less committed to the notion as a halachic and axiological category than people who take the most rigorous hardline position. It's a question of judgment, of weighing, of balancing, and then deciding. And at times, frankly, I'm appalled in this connection. Some years back, supposed to speak at a certain community down south, someone who lived in Atisrael for a year or two and then was already back here, called and kept me for half hour on the telephone from Florida, giving me cross-examination as to whether I ought to speak in his shul because he doesn't know what I tell us for Zionists. This he's sitting down over there and examining the Ravintal Zionism. Why? Because he's in favor of territorial compromise with that fellow thought. Someone was done up in Zionist position. I just recently, 
have a friend who lives in Yerushalayim. Has eight children, six of them sons, all of whom are in the army, Kravi. One of whom is Rashi Shiva, an officer of the tank corps. Another of whom is a Machat, the brigade commander. The other four have been to either the tank corps, the infantry. The man himself has been in several wars. His father was 80 years old, he used to walk around with his uniform for the Haganah. This fellow himself is number three in civil defense command in Yerushalayim. He had a girl visiting from Connecticut for a couple of months going to school, so she chastised him, why doesn't he have in his car a chevron meazer with tamid sai? Where's the sionut? This is not the litmus test, it's sionut. Let us debate, let us discuss, but not at that level, not at that basis. Kapchain said, once asked, he was known as being very lenient with regard to question of being a young people. Someone asked him, look, such a maker with regard to young keeper. And he said, no, I'm just a big machmer with regard to pikuach nefesh. <laughs> and those who are in favor of some form of territorial compromise are not chas Ought not, many are not, being the nature of Mekilim with regard to Shlemutaris, with regard to commitment to Eretz Yisrael, loyalty to it, But many of them are Machmirim with regard to the Koach Nefesh, and they're reading both of the immediate situation and particularly of the longer term possible dangers, because the peace process primarily was initiated not in order to deal with the present problems, terror, and so on, tragic as those, of course, are, but to avert the future war. And the concern for that may, at the level of ultimate decision, be viewed as outweighing the commitment to Shlemutaretz, not out of insensitivity to that as a value, but out of an awareness it's the choice of pyre or pyre, it's the choice between conflicting, divergent, agonizing positions. We need to enter into serious, committed debate, in part because that kind of debate is a value in its own right. Because they dealt with each other, even in debating serious issues, with respect, and that is inherently a value educationally, religiously, halachically. But beyond that, of course, the need for approaching the issues with the readiness to listen, really listen, not just to hear, but really listen, that derives from the gravity of the issues, and that is a litmus test of our responsibility to to Rabbi Yisrael and to Claudius. We know how serious the matter is, then we will not forego any opportunity to lend an ear, to lend a heart, to weigh, perhaps then to decide against, but decide against after we had given a genuine hearing and a genuine error. <coughs> it is my sense that to some extent in our Israel, and to some extent here, that kind 
of airing and hearing, that readiness to listen, even I say again, when something rejects one is heard. That that is lacking. And I speak not particularly of our own people within the Dati community. There is, as you well know, a prevalent view within that community, which by and large is one of opposition to the, the peace process. And that in and of itself is something which one can understand, appreciate, but what one does not appreciate and finds it difficult, morally speaking and halachically speaking, to understand is the fact that one senses a climate within which, particularly with respect to young people, the readiness, the sense of responsibility to hear before making the decision, before pressure, before taking this, but that does not exist at the level that given on the one hand a mature, responsible awareness of the significance of choice, on the other hand, a sense of the gravity of the issues, but where those two factors come in, I think one would have liked to see, one would have expected to see, a climate more ready, more open, full, serious, responsible discussion of the issues. My remarks here this morning are presented with a hope that to some extent they will contribute to developing that kind of a climate so that we can continue to deal with the issues out of commitment, out of awareness, out of the knowledge that indeed these are weighty matters and precisely for that reason, need to be approached in the proper way to speak. Ladies and gentlemen, Rav Lichtenstein is uh, on a tight time schedule but has agreed to address some questions from the floor, I would ask that you please make your question clear. We do not have time for long dissertations, and please direct it to a particular issue that the Rav may answer. There was a king who was also the Madriga of a prophet. And he gave us 40 years of peace with all the countries around. That king, Shlomo Hammer, that it says, the Berek Tesin Lohem Aleph, by Ten Shalomo, the Hira Melech Sor, a Srim Ir, the Eretz Hagalim. And we had 40 years of peace. Who else in the world had it besides Amish Forward by Shlomo Hammer? 40 years of peace neighbors around us. Hazal never raised an eyebrow, why did he give away 40 and 20 cities in Galilee to a, a neighbor, a pagan neighbor in, in Syria and Lebanon. Hazal criticized in the Bible too, Shalomela for, for the women he married, for other acts, but none of these. Why not to use this president to, to make our lives so much more easier? They will also have 40 and 50 and Right, um, yeah, I think I have a question. Do you want to address these? 
take, we'll take a few questions in order to, and the, the rub will take down the uh, issues. Yes. Uh, these comments break down two. Uh, some that were supportive, at least the first gentleman, supportive of what uh, uh, the general position which I presented, and the others, I think, at least implicitly, uh, more critical. With regard to the first question, fine, I think that is a point uh, to be made. But as you well know, the uh, uh, in dealing with contemporary issues, the drawing upon precedence in, uh, in Tanakh is a two-edged sword. Uh, the question is always what you f- feel to be the analogous situation to your own, and uh, there's no dearth of precedence in a different direction, so that I don't think that what you're suggesting is going to go very far to convincing people who are not subscribed to this position to begin with. But for those people, certainly it's a point which is well taken. The question was asked, if one pushes the notion of the Kikorach Nefesh to the very end, uh, does that then in effect negate the possible existence of the state altogether? Uh, I mentioned that in passing, and if one takes Chaim's uh, argument, that is precisely where you end up. Uh, I did not, for myself, uh, accept that position completely. Uh, and uh, my own thinking is that there's, in this respect, a very major difference between two uh, situations. The difference between being homeless and having a home is not the same as the difference between having a three-room apartment or a four-room apartment. The question of maintaining a national home, a viable national home, and a defensible national home, is quite different from the size of the home. Now, of course, we would like the home to be complete, including the garage, including the yard, including everything. Certainly, that's a value to us. But, the extent to which we can expect to make sacrifices, to invoke sacrifices, is, I think, quite different if you're talking about size or the very existence of the home or of the country. And this is for two reasons. Number one, because dealing with the home of per se, one of the things, of course, with the existence of the state has done is to save hundreds of thousands, minimally speaking, of Jewish lives. So even if you only are dealing with the calculus of the Kohach per se, the existence of the state is a major factor in a way that the size of the state need not be a factor. Secondly, even if one is not engaged in the calculus of Nefashus per se, but if one is talking about the value of maintaining a national home, uh, here too, the, the uh, sacrificing more lives in order to increase the size of the state, it's quite different than sacrificing the same number of lives in order to maintain its very existence because of the significance of having a state, of having a country, of having a Israel within our overall perspective. So I think there's a very clear uh, distinction there. I can understand so one might argue that even allowing for the distinction, but still the bottom line should be that the whole state isn't worth a single life. Uh, that is a tenable uh, argument, but that really brings me back to Sefer Achinuk, and I think that historically and halachically that on the whole has not been accepted. The notion that there are certain 
ultimate uh, national goals, for the sake of which some degree of, of sacrifice, even sacrifice of life, uh, is expected, I think that has fairly uh, deep roots in Tanakh, in, in Chazal, and, uh, but that item is very much to be distinguished from the question of the, uh, the size of the country. Uh, the other questions have to do more with certain specific aspects of the agreement and some of the facts that turn upon it. Those factors, I would just say, as one general response, of course need to be weighed and be weighed very seriously. Obviously, whether you're dealing with the Hamas or dealing with more moderate elements makes a great deal of difference. Obviously, one's reading of what Islamic uh, religious uh, or political theory may be towards the occupation, from their point of view, parts of Israel by us, of course that's a critical factor. You're dealing with them, and what is going to motivate them and how they're going to respond, of course, that's something you have to bear in mind. I lack, as you indicated, the expertise to make that judgment. People whom I read speak on both sides of it. Uh, well, actually, I should say, I think there are three views of the God. Some who say, don't worry, because they've got their own, uh, uh, their own kachnikim, but uh, don't worry about those. Those are not a factor. They're not really serious players. When push comes to shove, they will bend. Others, the other extremes say you don't know who you're dealing with. These are people who maybe you think are ready to make compromise, but in terms of their commitment, religiously speaking, compromise is not part of their vocabulary. And then there are people in the middle who say there's a chance maybe that the latter are right, that cannot be ruled out. There's a chance that the former are right. That too is a possibility. And then, within an overall reading of what are the risks on one side or the other, taking into consideration not only this particular risk, but the risks of continuing the status quo, make a decision with all the factors in mind. But certainly, I think it will be highly irresponsible to make any kind of decision with regard to the geopolitical situation without taking into consideration the mindset, the ideological commitment, etc., of the Islamic world with which we are dealing. What that, of course, uh, means is that even if some degree of compromise is accepted, that it needs to be accompanied by checks and balances. And here again, there's an argument, which is a security argument. What kind of checks, what kind of balances, how much, and to what extent are these reliable? Uh, I did not here take a position with regard to that. Uh, I was dealing more with the ideological issue, whether in principle we are open, if one arrives at the conclusion that the game is worth the candle on the security grounds, then are we ideologically prepared for that? And there I have a clear view, at least up to a certain point, up to a certain level of a sacrifice, not to the ultimate level, we've heard this woman's question before. Uh, but uh, that certainly, that ideological determination certainly cannot uh, free us from making the 
practical judgments with regard to security factors, and uh, that I certainly, uh, I certainly accept. Sir, we. I just don't. I literally don't hear you. I, I just didn't hear what you said, Adam. There are different readings as to what the future holds in store within the Islamic world. I take all these readings not with one, but with many grains of salt. Because after all, no one 20 years ago foresaw, even people who are so-called experts, foresaw the rise of Islamic fundamentalism as we have it today. So their projections will be 20 years from now, I also take with a grain of salt. The point is, though, that having taken them with many grains of salt, how do I weigh what kind of, uh, of checks and balances do I build into the system because of all of these reservations? And how do I view this model as opposed to another model, that is the model of some compromise with reservations and checks and balances, as opposed to continuing the present situation. Which holds the greater risks? Which holds the greater promise? The question that was very similar is to the possibility of uh, violations. Of course that possibility exists. Uh, and it would be foolhardy for anybody involved in planning the government's side uh, to dismiss those. Uh, are you asking me specifically what kind of responses or what kind of options is the government holding or those who favor the process, what are they holding in case there should be violations? Obviously, it depends on what the degree of the violation is and what kind of response that would then elicit. But in principle, no one, even the people who are you know, far more radical in their advocacy than, uh, than I am, uh, no one enters in, in, is going to this blind. No one thinks that you're dealing here with Sadiqin and Sayyidah Yisraelam, all of whom can be trusted uh, at their word. Uh, that would be uh, the height of irresponsibility. Uh, I'll take that uh, right. Two more questions. Yeah. But with regard to this, the first point that you made, this is the position which very vigorously, very vehemently, the Rav Zechel Nebuchadnezzar took right after the Six-Day War. He spoke in, in 1967. He said, this is an issue, he said, etc. He was readiness to, to return, return territory, etc. He knows all the targets, but human life is at least received priority, and he then went on to say that these questions should be addressed to people who are experts in security, generals, political figures, diplomats, etc., etc. I would qualify that, however. Of course, that, on the one hand, the category, category, but which needs to be applied on the basis of knowledge of the situation out, out there, whether it's a medical situation or military situation. However, inasmuch as here, coming back to the point that I mentioned about the quantitative factor, 
you are dealing with what is perhaps not strictly speaking a halachic decision where you just have to invoke a certain category to a certain situation, but are very much dealing with a, a moral or spiritual decision. If one were to assume that either a single life already vitiates the whole process, the loss of a single life, or at the other end, that a Muhammad lives are lost, that you have to go full steam ahead, that is a decision of principle, and that's it. If you take the position that neither of these extremes are acceptable, and cruel, crass as it sounds, if it's a certain level of loss of life, they'll say, all right, let's maintain shlemitavits. If it's a far more serious level, then you'll say, obviously not. You don't have any clear category, neither halachic nor uh, nor military, to tell you where you feel that line is to be drawn. You don't have a, a clear formulation of that. And there, you would have to invoke what I would take to be a certain moral or spiritual judgment, which is not, narrowly speaking, translatable into clearly defined halachic categories, and there, the ball would not pass simply from the Rav to the general, the Rav having dictated the, the principle, the information being given to the general, then in, invoked. It would have to come back, in a sense, to a, a moral and spiritual judgment, not necessarily the narrow sense of the term, halach of but a judgment as to whether that is something which tenable, with which we can live, with which we should live, but not something you can translate to clear categories. No one is going to tell you, or, or can even begin to put on the table categories which will tell you, uh, whether X lives, or X plus 10 lives, or whatever it is, where that is the quote-unquote, and again, I apologize for the crassness of the term, is a, a price that is, that is viable. In general, I think that just as we find that with regard to individuals, the fulfillment of a certain mitzvah can be deferred if the price is excessive, even in monetary terms. Presumably, at a national plane, that's also true. Beyond a certain price, the community of Nesh should not pay a price for Yishuvahs. Where that price lies has to be defined. I don't think there are clear categories for that. And then you come back to what is to some extent an intuitive judgment rooted in a moral halachi sensibility, but not definable as a suit of halachi care. I see. All right. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Rav Liftenstein is catching a plane. We're worried that we can take, we're sorry, we can take no more questions. Once again, thank you very much. Thank you.